Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through the blood of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. If you take a look on page 9 in your bulletin, the sermon outline, at the very bottom you'll see kind of a timeline. And I thought this might be helpful for you. Uh, the first reading for this evening was uh, the very end of Genesis 14. We read the entirety of Genesis 14 uh, last week. And that took place around 2000 BC, where Abram was greeted by Melchizedek, this priest king of Salem, which is really Jerusalem. That's what Salem is. It's the uh, pre-Davidic city of David. He's a priest and a king, and he's superior to Abram, and that's saying something. And we know he's superior because he blessed Abram. Abram received the blessing. The lesser receives from the greater. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils then from the previous battle, signifying, as Melchizedek said, God gave you the victory. Abram recognized that truth by paying a tithe of the spoils to Melchizedek. So that's 2000 BC. Then our text for this evening is from uh, Psalm 110. That's written by David around 1000 BC. So a thousand years later, Melchizedek is mentioned once again in Scripture. And then next week, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 7, where Melchizedek well, he plays a huge role in the book of Hebrews. We'll learn more about that next week. But that's in the first century then, A.D. So another thousand years elapse, and Melchizedek's mentioned once again in Scripture, this time in the New Testament. And he gets a lot of ink outside of the Bible, too. I didn't tell you this last week, but uh, the Jewish philosopher Philo lived around the time of Christ. He wrote about Melchizedek. The Jewish historian Josephus who also lived around the time of Christ, wrote of Melchizedek as well. I did mention last week he was the subject of discussion in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So he gets a lot of ink outside of the scriptures as well as some ink in the scriptures. Now secondly, take a look on page 8. I've given you kind of an outline of Psalm 110. And I've bold-faced for you the words of Yahweh. These are the, you know, God does everything by speaking, right? He makes the world by speaking. He makes the lame walk by speaking, and so on. Uh, we consecrate the elements of Holy Communion by the words of Christ. Those words do what they say. God's word always does. So I boldface the words of Yahweh where he establishes the Christ at his right hand. That's the power of God, you know, in the ancient world. If you were to swing a sword, it was probably with your right hand. Most people are right-handed. So Christ is at the very power of God. Revelation reveals this as the center of God's throne. We see the Lamb of God occupying the center of God's throne. He's a divine figure. He's God's Son. So those words are bold-faced where God the Father establishes the ministry of Christ. And this is after his ascension, he sits at the right hand of God, and he's declared in verse 4, 
to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll say more about that shortly. But I want you to see that that verse 4 is central to the psalm. It's right in the middle. And I've read that according to the Hebrew uh, syllables in the Hebrew Bible, there's exactly the same number of syllables before verse 4 as there are after verse 4. So it's smack dab in the center, which gives it a very prominent place. Then this priesthood of Christ is like that of Melchizedek. So the first three verses describe Christ's work as king. After his ascension, the gospel ministry goes forth. Uh, verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. I take that, to, this is my interpretation, I take that to be like the call of Christ to the disciples, a powerful word. They respond accordingly. This is true for all of us. The Lord speaks to us his word. The spirit applies it to the heart. We believe, we willingly follow. And then the last three verses are Christ's work as king on judgment day. And it's kind of a lot of mayhem going on in those uh, final verses there. But that's Christ coming in judgment then. So it gives you kind of a, a snapshot, a brief snapshot of what's going on in Psalm 110. That's the psalm in its entirety. So on page 9, Roman numeral 1. Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to 33 times in the New Testament. It is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. 33 times it's quoted or alluded to. It is the passage that had the most influence on the New Testament writers, on the apostles. They quote it or allude to it again and again and again. It's that important. And letter A Jesus plays a game with it, stump the scribes, and that's in our uh, third reading for this evening from Matthew 22. He asked them, the Pharisees and their scribes, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. Well, then how did David, speaking by the Spirit, call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How do you make sense of that? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they don't have an answer. They're stumped, okay? Now you and I know the answer. Yeah, the Messiah, the Christ, truly is David's son, but he's more. That's not all he is. He is also God's son. He is divine. He is God in the flesh. So letter B. Jesus affirms that although the Messiah comes from David, he further maintains that the Messiah surpasses David. He surpasses David. And, and I cite Revelation 22, verse 16, where Jesus himself speaks, and he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. Meaning, I'm David's source, and I'm also his descendant. <laughs> Okay, so it's quite a statement. He is before David, and he's after David. He's God, the God-man. So Roman numeral two, Psalm 110. What's going on here is it's almost as if David overhears a conversation 
between God the Father and God the Son. He hears a conversation taking place between Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the Lord, that's all caps, L-O-R-D, all in caps, and David's Lord, Adonai. Now, Adonai is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It is used in the Hebrew Bible not only for God, it's probably the most common designation for God in the Hebrew Bible, but it's also used with respect to men in positions of authority. A master, let's say, an important religious figure, you might refer to him as my master, my Adonai. Okay? So it can be used with reference to God or with reference to man. And it's the perfect designation for Jesus, who is, after all, God and man. So letter A, the Lord Yahweh works through means. He works through instruments. He works through people. Yeah, he can deal with you directly, but in mercy he doesn't. He deals with you through people, through words, through water and the word in baptism. He comes to us in these physical ways that we can perceive and withstand. To appear to us in glory would blow us away, but he comes to us through means, through instruments. That's a mercy, that is grace. He comes to us, he works through Adonai, David's Lord. And he's always done this. I cite Genesis chapter one, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock. So God is made in man's image, like man, like God is made man to be sort of like a statue representing God on the earth, ruling in God's place. That's our original commission by God, you see. He's always worked this way. And point number one, the word sit, this is, you'll see this now in verse one of our text, sit at my right hand. Sit suggests a finished task. When you sit down, you're done with your work, or at least the first phase of your work. Christ has accomplished his redemptive work at the cross. He's redeemed humanity there. It doesn't mean all humanity believes and receives that redemption personally, but what he's done, he's done for all. That work is done, it's complete, he ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of God. His work is finished. And the right hand, point number two, is the seat of divine power, as I mentioned earlier. And point number three, the scepter which goes forth uh, the Lord, verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. This is just my interpretation. I see that as the gospel ministry through the apostles going forth, turning God's enemies into God's people through the preaching of law and gospel. This is how the Lord works. This is how he transforms lives, makes us former enemies into friends. And let her be. David's Lord is also a priest slash mediator. He's a priest or mediator. That's what a priest does. A priest 
offers sacrifice, in this case he offers himself, the person of Jesus, and he also mediates, he intercedes, he acts as a go-between between God and man. Point number one, a mediator reconciles those who were previously estranged, previously distant, separate. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. We needed to be reconciled to God because we left him. He didn't leave us. We left him. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Several weeks ago, my wife and I were um, downtown. We went out to eat at um, a place called Taku. And we walked through the front door and there's a maitre d' or a host, whatever however you want to refer to him. And he asks this question. He says, do you want the hibachi or the restaurant? And I, I thought to myself, well, the hibachi's probably cost more. <laughs> so I said, the restaurant. And so he leads us to a table where we are seated, you see. That's the job of a maitre d'. He assigns you a seat, okay, among other things. He, assign, he takes you where he wants you to sit so that you now have a place in the restaurant. And that's important because prior to that, you were outside the restaurant. You didn't belong in there until you entered. You were welcomed. You were then received and taken to a place. Now you belong inside the restaurant, okay? Now think about that, because Jesus says very, something very similar in John chapter 14. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. So where's he going? Well, not only is he going to ascend to heaven after his resurrection, but first and foremost, he's going to the cross. And there he will prepare a place for you in the Father's house house. You were once outside that house, okay? You didn't belong. But because of what he did, preparing a place for you, you've been received, you have been shown to your place through baptism, you've been given a place, a seat in God's presence, you see. So, this is transitioning you from one state of being to another, being outside of God's favor and now being in God's favor. That's what Jesus does, kind of like a maitre d' takes you from the outside and gives you a place inside. Now you belong, you see. That is the work of a mediator. And we hear about Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, what does that mean? Among other things, it means this. He receives you and assigns you your place so that you now belong. That's why we need a mediator. We need a priest, somebody who will welcome us, who qualifies us to be present 
and gives us our place, that's Christ. That's a priest. That's a mediator. And point number two, his priesthood is not that of Aaron. We'll learn more about that next week. Limited by death, priests die, right? But that of Melchizedek, which is eternal. It's an eternal priesthood. Now, why do we say it's an eternal priesthood? Well, if you go back to Genesis, you know, Genesis is full of genealogies, and this is what tires people when they read it, but the genealogies are really the most important part of the book. Everything hangs on the genealogies. And everybody of any importance has a genealogy. And everybody of any importance dies, except Melchizedek. There's no genealogy for him. His death is never recorded. And you'll see next week, the writer of Hebrews makes a lot of hay out of this. Okay. Melchizedek is without beginning. He's without end. There's no genealogy. There's no death being recorded. Now, I told you last week, Melchizedek is a Canaanite priest king. He's a Gentile. He combines the offices of priest and king. No one else does that in Scripture except Christ. He's a priest king without beginning, without end. Now, I believe he died. I believe he had parents. He was a man. But without beginning, without genealogy, without his death being recorded, he symbolizes someone else, you see. He symbolizes the one high priest who is truly without beginning and without end, and that's Jesus Christ, you see. So we're not saying, we're not making the claim that Melchizedek is an eternal being himself. We're saying that he's similar to the one who is eternal, and that's Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews will, will say next week. That's the, one of the points he'll be making, you see. So this priesthood is eternal, and why does that matter? Because in John 14, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's speaking to a specific audience of disciples who heard his words. You weren't there. I wasn't there. But his priesthood of ushering you into the kingdom and assigning you a place to sit, to be, is not limited by death. In other words, he's still the priest. He still mediates your way into the Father's house and into God's presence because he lives. And so when he speaks those words in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you you know it includes you, it includes me, because he lives. He still mediates. He doesn't die. Death has no more mastery over him. And then let her see. For David, Psalm 110 is like Saul's armor. Do you know what I mean when I talk about Saul's armor? In 1 Samuel 17, David's getting ready to face the giant Goliath. 
And Saul says, well, son, if you're going to do this, you better put on some armor. Here, I've got some. Now, Saul was a big man. David was a boy. How do you think he looked in that armor? Didn't fit. Didn't fit at all. David said, no, I'm, I'm going to trust in the Lord, and I'm going to do this the way I think I can do it, you see. Sling in a stone. The armor wouldn't fit. Armor's too big. Doesn't fit David. Neither does Psalm 110, ultimately. Neither does Psalm 110. Point number one, the combined office priest-king is too big for David or any mere mortal to fill. It's too big. We're talking about someone who sits at the right hand of God. This is a divine figure, not David. That's not David. We're talking about someone who's a priest. That's not David. Oh, David sometimes acted like a priest, but he was not a priest. He was a king, and those offices were separate. David prefigures Jesus in the psalm in some ways, but only Jesus fills it out. The armor fits him and no one else. And that means point number two, the Messiah has a higher status than some Jews were prepared to admit. I say some Jews because the first Christians were what? They were Jews. They saw Christ in this passage. Jesus applied it to himself. And they applied it to him. They saw him there, you see. The Jews would, re would reply, a man cannot be God. Well, we would admit a man cannot become God. That's impossible. But God can become a man. And he does in the person of Jesus. And that is necessary for our salvation. We can't be saved by a mere man. We can only be saved by the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so that brings us back to our Lord's question in the third reading, the bottom of page 8. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, he's not just David's son. He is, but he's more. He's God's son, and he must be in order to fulfill the words of Psalm 110. We'll conclude this discussion next week with a look at Hebrews chapter 7. So you might want to take a look at that in advance. You'll find Melchizedek mentioned in Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, and a lot in Hebrews 7. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you in the shadows of the past, you prefigure the ministry, the work of your only Son, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for those first believers. They dared believe that God appeared in the flesh. And we dare believe that he's risen and he continues to intercede and minister for our sake. Keep our faith in him strong. Build us up in your holy word and prepare us for the celebration of Christmas. 
in Jesus' name, amen.